Poor people are not big contributors to political campaigns. Poor people don't create a lot of jobs. But there are 85 million poor people in America. Hmm, maybe something's happening there. Maybe it'll happen this year in 2024. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. The margins of victory in the last few elections have, in many cases, been exceedingly small. Tens of millions of dollars are spent targeting various demographics and interest groups in hope of swinging that small group of undecideds and persuadables. The groups targeted uh, focus on suburbanites and the middle class. True, there are always efforts made to hold on to and build support and enthusiasm among young people, another key demographic which is looking seriously up for grabs more than usual in 2024. But there's another exceedingly large group of infrequent voters. In a revival of the movement made famous in 1968 by Martin Luther King, there's a resurrection of the Poor People's Campaign. It recently announced plans to mobilize a potentially powerful, yet usually overlooked voting bloc. The 85 million eligible voters who are poor or low income. 85 million out of a country of some 330 million. If they can be reached and motivated, the political leadership of this country may be dramatically moved. A major redirection of America is at least in theory possible. This new revitalized Poor People's Campaign is indeed a movement. And as historian Michael Kazin points out in his book, What It Took to Win, the history of the last 150 years or so shows that it takes movements to make the electoral difference. Movements are far more politically powerful than mere parties. How is it that this huge segment of America, this vast potential for real political change has so often been ignored? Why is voter participation among the poor and working class so low? What can be done to activate and energize this potentially key segment of American voters? And what is the 2024 Poor People's Campaign. Can this sleeping giant be awakened in time? With us on Keeping Democracy Alive today is Shelley Gupta Barnes. She is policy director of the Kairos Center for Rights, Religions, and Social Justice. She has a background in economics, law, and human rights, and has spent nearly 20 years working with and for poor and dispossessed communities in the U.S. and around the world. Since 2017, Shelley Gupta Barnes has also served as the policy director for the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Yes, a national call for moral revival. She has co-authored and edited the campaign's groundbreaking reports, including The Souls of Poor Folk, Auditing America, The Poor People's Moral Budget, Unleashing the Power of Poor and Low-Income Americans, Waking the Sleeping Giant, Poor and Low-Income Voters in the 2020 Elections, and the Poor People's Pandemic Report. Well, Shelley, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. 85 million people is a lot of people. Why has this giant been sleeping? Well, thank you, Bert, for for calling attention to this. Um, I want to spend a minute just appreciating how how big this number is. Um, 85 million, that's about a third of all eligible voters in the country. That's more people 
than who elected Biden in 2020. It's more people than who voted for Trump in 2020. It's many more million than who voted for either Trump or Clinton in 2016, more than Obama and Romney. It's just massive numbers of people in every state and probably every county. And yet when we describe it as sleeping, what we mean is that it hasn't been awakened to its true political power potential. Um, and this is for various reasons. Um, some of those are kind of self-fulfilling narratives that these voters aren't interested in politics or elections, which I really don't think is any more true than any other segment of voters. Um, but then there are other reasons that are structural, kind of the infrastructure uh, to bring them into the voting electorate is lacking. So on the one hand, if you don't see your interests reflected in political platforms or, de or debates, and then on top of that, it's actually harder to go register and vote because your polling station has been moved or closed or you don't have enough time, you know, to go vote, you know, especially if you're in rural counties and small towns, these things make it harder for people to participate in elections. Oh, for sure. It's, it's more difficult. And it's, if people can't take time off from work... I mean, there are exactly. there are towns in America where voting has been restricted to say, ten to six p.m. That cuts out most people. I mean, is that by accident? I don't think so. You know, and what explains why most voting drives and political candidates have ignored this huge segment of society, this one third? Well, I think I think actually the main reason for this is is this generally widely held belief that poor and low income people aren't interested in voting or vote against their interests or aren't interested kind of fundamentally in politics. And therefore, they're just not a segment of voters that gets a lot of attention leading up to the elections during the elections or after them. Um, and I, I describe this sometimes as self-fulfilling because if they're not engaged on their terms, this narrative on, you know, the kind of apolitical or unsophisticated character of poor and low-income voters ends up feeding itself, um, you know, with lower participation rates among, among these voters and higher-income voters. But that said, in 2020, poor and low-income people both registered and voted at higher rates than they did in 2016. So we can't yeah. say... Yeah that they're not interested in elections or politics. And in fact, I think that, you know, when we say, when we blame these voters, you know, what this narrative does is blame these voters for the failure of a political system that doesn't speak to their interests, that doesn't actively engage these millions of people on what they need. And I would even go so far to say it doesn't take their needs or interests very seriously. Right. Um, and it's much easier to shift the blame onto these voters rather than taking responsibility for bringing them into the electorate in a meaningful way. And let's face it, uh, political candidates for, you know, high federal office are all about fundraising. And this segment of the population, there's not a lot there. there you know, there's not a lot of uh, money in the bucket there. So this Poor People's Campaign that's, that's being kicked off March 2nd, how did this come about and how has it been uh, organized? Is it from uh, religious communities? I mean, there's talk, a lot of talk about morals as well. How did it come about, the Poor People's Campaign of 2024? So in the 2024, where we're at today is a reflection of many years. Uh, we launched this campaign in 2017 following, uh, you know, national tour and really the trajectories of two um, two kind of what are the two national anchor organizations of the campaign today, the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights and Social Justice and Repairs of the Breach, um, which had been, you know, moving in this direction independently. And then we found each other and started 
you know, planning towards this release, uh, this relaunch of the campaign on the 50th anniversary of uh-huh. of, of the 1968 historic campaign um, in 2018. And so in 2017, we, you know, uh, had been around the country, connected with all these communities and actually started with poor and low-income communities. And we didn't start with the big national organizations. We started by, uh-huh. you know, going state to state, visited hundreds of communities, had thousands of meetings, built an agenda around what we understood and heard over these many years, as well as kind of decades of organizing before then, and brought together those communities, uh, grassroots organizations, many, many uh, clergy and faith leaders uh-huh. and people of conscience who could see that we needed something new and different to shift this terrain Um and then, yeah, so, yeah, yeah that's, and, that's where we're coming from. And something <laughs> that connects with people and inspires people. And one, exactly. one can easily predict that federal candidates, especially those running for president, will make well-publicized visits to local places, important places like barbershops, churches, other traditional gathering places for black Americans just before every election. But the people in those communities, uh, let's face it, how, how can you not see right through it if those candidates have not shown a real ongoing focus on the interests of people in those communities? What can politicians be doing to actually connect, inspire, and build enthusiasm in those communities, aside from just showing up at the last minute and saying, vote for me? Well, that's exactly it. Don't show up at the last minute. Don't wait until election day to try to connect with these voters, right? The platforms, the agendas, they're all set by then. But if you want people to believe you really care about them, show that by reaching out early, listening to what they have to say, and then following up on that by by implementing mm-hmm. some of what you heard into the agenda, right? Be real. People, you know, poor people, poor low-income people understand we understand that politics is complicated. But we also really appreciate honest and real conversations that take us seriously. You know, so once that in, and you know once that's in place, once you've shown that accountability, that connection, show up for show up for poor people in Congress, right? In your legislative arena, the state and federal levels, fight for the ability of poor and low income people, poor and low income people, to participate in elections, and don't ever let that fight go. <laughs> People can see right through it. Oh, for sure, for sure. What are some of the (laughs) most pressing issues on the Poor People's Campaign agenda? So, you know, our agenda is a reflection of all the injustices that poor and low-income people face in this country every day, which means it's comprehensive. It's big. It covers everything from from voting rights to welfare reform to health care, safe schools, you know, which also means it addresses raising taxes and redirecting military spending and and debt relief, all these things. So and and when we separate these issues apart, we're separating the lives of poor people apart. So we we can't do that. Um, But the core message, one core message that we're lifting up uh, in 2024 is that poverty is, in fact, the fourth leading cause of death in the United States. Mm. And so that alone, that allows us to focus on all of these policies, right, while also pushing to make sure that we all have access to the things that we need to to not just live, but to thrive. Mm -hmm. And there's no question about it that uh, a lot of uh, diseases uh, strike low-income and poor people much more because there's no access or very little minimal access to health care. And, you know, you talk about welfare reform. You know, we have this uh, corporate welfare. Isn't that's not good enough? 
<laughs> no, certainly not. Yeah, we're only focusing on one side of the equation. We're lifting it. We're you know we're leaving out 140 million poor people, poor mm. and low income people. 140 million, right? So, right. yeah, corporate welfare is not enough. <laughs> no, it's it's not enough. Trickle down. As, no, as, it doesn't work. As, yeah. as Rocky said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. It just no. doesn't work. And as a recovering politician myself, and I did manage to get elected a number of times, I can very much attest to the power of door knocking. The personal touch reaches people in a way expensive TV ads do not. So uh, tell us about the door knocking part of it. Whose doors will be knocked on in the Poor People's Campaign effort? Well, um, we can anticipate, you know, what we're doing in 2024 to look like what we did in 2020 um, uh -huh. and 2022. So during those years, we organized these massive voting drives to reach very specifically eligible, poor and low income voters who, who at that point were non-voters. So what we mean by poor and low income is just voters with household incomes of under $50,000 a year. And there were non-voters, meaning that they didn't participate in, you know, maybe the past two or three election cycles. Um, and so we, you know, mainly reached out over text and phone main game. But in, two, in 2020, we reached 2 million eligible poor, uh, you know, 2 million of these voters. Um, multilingual campaign. We were Spanish, English, but also uh, American Sign Language mm -hmm. in more than a dozen states. We, and we trained a thousand volunteers to participate in this. And we scaled this program up in 2022 for the midterm. So this is this is some of what we can expect in 2024, um, which, which the campaign has already announced. We're going to try to reach 15 million of these voters. We can't you know, talk in too much detail about the states yet, but I'm sure you can guess some of them based on the terrain we're dealing with this year. And hopefully factoring in the... Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, voting block, you know, the the uh, situation yeah. where it doesn't, you know, it's uh, doesn't matter as much if a if a uh, candidate wins the most votes. It's state by state and the electoral college. You know, you got to. Uh, that's a tough tough nut to crack, and a lot of them are, are, are you know leaning pretty right wing. Why why is the planned forty two weeks of action called a resurrection? And not an insurrection. What does this mean? What is it? What does it mean by a resurrection? Yeah, this is you know this is great because it it kind of shows the two directions we're we're kind of heading in this country, right? Or the the choices we the the two kind of divergent paths we're heading towards. So the the insurrection, of course, is a reference to the riots in D.C. at the Capitol right. on, on January 6th. Right. Um, you know, I th although I think calling it an insurrection gives it too much credit, but it, but it was a fundamental attack yes. on our political system, on our democracy, and those forces still exist. They've been emboldened and continue to you know, do as they do in many ways unchecked. So to call to counter that, we're calling for a resurrection, meaning a reviving, a mm. revival of our democracy, in part, really, by engaging those who've been pushed to the margins, bringing them to the center. Um, and more than one voter one day, this is a sustained commitment to building that thriving society that, that centers the poor, that lifts from the bottom up, right? Rather than, as, as you said earlier, waiting, waiting to, you know, for, for wealth and prosperity to, tr to trickle down. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> Republicans, you know, they, there's many, many different levels of, of politics and how a difference can be made. Republicans learned a long time ago 
that it's not just the federal government, uh, but what goes on at the state level is also important in people's lives. I think they learned that in back in 2010 with the Tea Party effort. Mm-hmm. The Poor People's Campaign has recognized this even if the National Democratic Party has yet to do so. Please tell us about what the campaign is planning to do at the state level as well, because that's so important at the state level. It is. And we've all, you know, we've always been organized from the states up um, in part because, you know, a national campaign isn't truly national until it has a real presence at the state level. That's just how our our country's politics are organized. So we have um, currently, you know, over 30 coordinating committees in in over 30 states. Um, Each of these has a diverse leadership structure. Most of it is volunteer based. Um, with a lot of day-to-day autonomy in the work that they do, but these, we have these coordinated national activities that move that move forward our agenda. Um, and so, in for instance, in 2023, I worked on a series of, of fact sheets um, that cover every major issue area of the of the Portugal's campaign for for all 50 states and DC. So every state is equipped when it goes into these legislative meetings, when it's organizing, when it's reaching out to low-income voters, you know, to speak to issues with with some local data and content, but still maintaining, you know, that national coherence so we can move as one one band with one sound. Mm. And so so this year, just, just earlier this week, we had um, on February 20th, we did, had these coordinated press conferences in dozens of states. In early March and March 2nd and 4th, there'll be activities across, uh, you know, at the state assemblies. Um, and then in June 15th, there'll be a national rally um, in D.C., which which will then launch, you know, our, our continuing um, campaign towards Election Day. And certainly so many issues are discussed and settled at the state level, like taxation. I mean, here, you know, where, yes. the, where the show is coming from in New Hampshire, the tax uh, system is terribly unfair and it just you know people pay taxes based on uh the value of their home which it's it's just it should it should it's your house doesn't pay your taxes you have to pay your taxes and it has to come from your income and you know again that can be done very much at the state level it's an awful lot of issues that are settled Mm -hmm. at the state level and not the federal level for those who may have just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive and we're talking about keeping democracy alive our guest today is uh, sheila gupta barnes uh who's uh served as a policy director for the Poor People's Campaign, which is a national call for moral revival. And there's there's a lot to do. I, I, sh- I have to ask, you know, this big, big effort all across the country, you know, it's happening in all different states and all different communities. Um, it's got to cost some serious money. Who, it, it, it is in the interests of everyone, I think, except the greedy, to have more people participating in, in elections. So hopefully there will be some people who have resources who contribute uh, to this, uh, the Poor People's Campaign, because it's, you know, if we want a democracy, you know, that's in everybody's interest. Where does does the money come from? And how much is this? Well, I mean, this is this is a little going out of my lane, but you know, okay. I, I think okay. you're you're right to say that um, that this is in everyone's interest, especially, you know, when we have when forty percent of the country, basically, you know, one hundred forty million people are are poor or one emergency away from being poor. That doesn't mm. affect just that forty percent of the people, right? It affects uh. really affects everybody. Um, it affects what kind of you know what our schools are like, what are what are kind of public 
services and, you know, uh, like what how, it, it affects the shape of our lives every day. Um, and it reflects, you know, the 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 increasing kind of abandonment of 40 percent of the nation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, by by our by our elected officials, by the rest of society. And the other thing that we had to keep in mind, if that 140 million is from year to year, you know, large segments, even greater percentages of people will experience poverty at some point in their lifetimes. Uh. Right. And so so this isn't something that we can marginalize and, and just say, you know, kind of look at from a very charity or philanthropic point of view. Like right. this is actually something that affects the heart of our democracy and and every single one of us, you know, and our children and grandchildren and generations that will come after. No question about it. Well put. So there's the kickoff is, is March 2nd. What's planned for the June 15th convergence at the U.S. Capitol? What are its goals? Well, so um, this June, so every June uh, since we since at the beginning of this campaign in 2018, um, we uh, convene, you know, our, our state committees and our partners and allies in June in D.C. So it's just kind of a it's, it's an important moment for our campaign every year um, to both uh, feel and remember our power and then show the rest of the country who we are. And so last last June or sorry, in June 2022, we had a massive rally in D.C. The first we had been planning it for 2020, but obviously the pandemic shifted that. Oh, yeah. And so we moved it to two years later to June 2022. And then in June 2023, we had a national Congress where we brought a thousand, nearly a thousand of our state uh, coordinating committee leaders to uh, to um, DC, and we started to prepare for for this June, really a year ago. Um, and so this June, 2024, we know we're heading into this election year. Massive mobilizing is already going on, you know, far and beyond the PPC, whether it's whether it's on ceasefire or you know or anything else. It's a very dynamic terrain. So we're watching all of that. And while I can't say, you know, can't share too many details at this point about June, we are staying focused on the particular strengths and, or, and orientation of what a poor people's campaign can and needs to do in 2024 as we head into, you know, what will be another critical election Mm -hmm. for our democracy. Yes, it will. And they say every election year is critical. They say, oh, this is the most important election. But this this is, I mean, there's so much going on here, you know, who we are as a country. Uh, do we, you know, are are we even a, a, a nation? I don't know. I mean, this, the divisions are so huge. But uh, people, as you say, it affects everybody. And you can't marginalize. You can't. It, it's just so short-sighted to marginalize people with low incomes and poor people because uh, it does affect everybody. At a Poor People's uh, Campaign press conference, uh, noted and highly respected pollster, Celinda Lake, spoke. She's really good. I I like her a lot. What did she have to say? What reasons did she give as to why this year politicians may actually be listening? Well, she said three things that that I just loved. Um, uh, One, she said that 2024 is all about mobilizing. Um, Two, she said that poor and low-income voters are the largest segment of voters to focus on mobilizing. And three, she said this could be game-changing, right? And so Uh, she is looking at states 
where the margins are anticipated to be very small um, and the battleground states, you know, are even tighter than they may have been in the past. And comparing those margins against the numbers of poor and low income eligible voters in those states and the numbers just speak for themselves. You know, you're talking about, you know, many times more of these eligible voters who could be brought into the electorate and shifting those margins. And that's, I think, why politicians might be listening. There's so much on the line. The margins are smaller and tighter. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking for an advantage, here's one right here. Um, and, I, and I just have to say also, you know, the Poor People's Campaign is a nonpartisan campaign. And so for me, I'm not, I mean, I'm not necessarily looking to see who wins in 2024. Obviously, that's important. And like, we're, 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 you know, looking at all these things. But if we, you know, if we, if we really think about organizing and mobilizing the power of this segment of voters, one thing is looking at winning these margins. The other is what you do when you win those margins. Uh-huh. And that's where organized, you know, groups of poor people can make a significant difference in the long term, right, on the policies that are enacted after Election Day. Um, and we need that committed political force to push for things like like health care and housing and education, which benefit all of us. Speaking of health care, uh, one big issue is, is what Bernie Sanders has talked about, uh, Medicare for all. Is this is it is it some, is that I mean, that's, that's a fairly specific issue. And uh, I, 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 wonder, I wonder if uh, that's something that uh, the Poor People's Campaign necessarily is on board with, or is it less defined than Medicare for all? So we, we haven't endorsed kind of specific legislation, but uh-huh. what uh-huh. We're, when we call for kind of a universal health care system, you know, we're talking about something that looks very similar to Medicare for all. And what, what we do know is that, you know, those policies and programs that actually benefit poor and low-income people, they improve the whole of our society, whether it's like, whether it's expanded voting rights, or if we go further back, unemployment insurance, social security, programs like Head Start, these all come out of intense, committed, you know, committed political organizing of poor dispossessed people and they every single one has advanced our society as a whole and so we very much need something like medicare for all to to ensure that you know we're not we're not bankrupted mm-hmm. um, by a health crisis and have access to the care we need when we need it and let's face it employers need healthy employees you know it's just the, the whole economy uh, you need to have healthy yes. people it's 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 something that uh, that that we need and you talk about dispossessed one of the things historically that uh, uh, tyrants and others have, have have depended on is people feeling dispossessed left behind and that's uh, helped i mean you can tell where i stand on this uh, donald trump has uh, you know played to this that people connecting with people who feel dispossessed and here's some you know guy in a white horse coming in just to to save people you know this simple thing will fix it uh it doesn't work that way and one candidates for major office always feel like they have to raise millions of dollars and in 2016 presidential a certain presidential candidate uh, who shall remain nameless focused on small groups of wealthy potential donors and she got a lot of money and people in the less wealthy Midwest rural areas they felt overlooked because they were overlooked. She, her campaign yes. flew over there. Do you see any evidence 
I'm not sure I do, that candidates in 2024 have learned this lesson, that you can't just go for the where the money is, you know, the few people who can write big checks. Uh, I, I don't know if they've learned this lesson, that they need to, to look at the Electoral College map. And I wonder if this is a lesson that the Poor People's Campaign is trying to teach relative to low-income people, to this, to this demographic, that you can't, you can't yeah, forget people. You. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, I, I don't, I have, it's hard to see that, that they've learned this lesson yet. Yeah. Um, but but I do think that in the months ahead, and especially as the Poor People's Campaign kind of develops and rolls out this voter engagement drive, focusing on low-income voters and, and trying to show like there is real power potential here. Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic that will change just because we're talking really about massive numbers of people who, you know, just simply can't be ignored anymore. We've seen the consequences yeah. of, of what happens when we when we don't pay attention to to these huge swaths of not just voters but of people right of, of constituents in this in this in this democracy and and the, the the costs are too great too great for this country to bear indeed and one other thing is that uh you know if as politicians you know you always want free airtime on tv and there's the uh, earned media as they call it rather than paid media and i wonder you know i do find it it's interesting to to compare the three large networks, and they're still, you know, they're the biggest. There's there's other ways, you know, with the, with the internet and everything, but getting attention from those networks is it's not easy to do. And I've it's been frustrating sometimes what they cover and what they don't cover. And I wonder yes. about uh, have there been discussions about you know, how to make the media pay attention to us, because some people have said, well, if it doesn't happen on TV, it doesn't happen. This is true. And and I think our attention spans have been changed, you know, and, and what, what pulls our attention has been changed. And I think this is, you know, we're dealing with a media infrastructure that is also being consolidated, right? I mean, large corporations, a very few number of large corporations own or control a huge number of media outlets that, um, that, that are pushing out, this content that define really in many ways uh, the scope of this political train and what issues are and aren't important. And so um, this is the other reason I think that the Poor People's Campaign and its local and state-based infrastructure is really important because each state campaign is is asked to to reach out to to local media, right, to get these stories in at a local level and try mm-hmm. to navigate that better than sometimes, you know, at a national level, it can be it can be, it can be harder to reach those those smaller outlets um, because they've been there's this heavy level of consolidation. Boy, that is for sure true. And talking to local media, I I would say can't be overemphasized because people do pay attention to to local media. You, you may not exactly. be able you may not be able to get the the ABC, NBC, and CBS you know national desks, but if you can get the local, and there is that thing coming up in June, so hopefully. And I, I remember back in uh, oh gosh, I can't remember what year it was. There was the uh, Solidarity March, pro labor union march, mm-hmm. big march in Washington. It got like no coverage, and so yeah. it almost like it didn't happen at all. I was very frustrated by that. I thought it, I thought it would be, uh, yeah. And as if you, for those who may have just tuned in, Burke Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is uh, Shelley uh, Shelley Gupta Barnes, uh, who is a director policy director for the Poor People's Campaign. We're talking about the Poor People's Campaign. This is not 1968. This is 2024. It's coming.
It's coming, and it's exciting. <laughs> and let's face it also, these last few years have been very, very good to people with wealth. I'm old enough to remember when there was a large middle class, when people working in manufacturing could live on their income. Oftentimes, a one-income family could make it okay. But the middle class has clearly been hollowed out. We've had a tax structure and so many different factors that have rewarded the rich and, and really decimated what used to be a strong middle class. Do you, do you think the Poor People's Campaign is able to reach these newly poor who used to be middle class? Are they, or, or is the, the newly poor more likely to distance themselves, to feel more allied with the upper class and say, oh, no, that's, that's those people's problem, those people's problem, not mine. What do, you, what do you think about that in reaching the newly poor who used to be middle class, which is a growing segment of our country? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think you're, you know, closing in on one of the real challenges of organizing just poor people overall is that a lot of people don't want to be identified as poor. Right. Um, it's not because they're not poor. It's because of the shame and blame that's attached to oh. poverty, right? So poor people are seen as lazy or crazy or the fault of their own crises. Yes. But again, in the situation where 40% of the country you know, nearly one out of every three voters are, are poor or just one emergency away from financial ruin. We're, we got to look at the systemic causes of this misery. It's not because they're all, all these tens of millions of people. It's not because they were all in the wrong place at the wrong time or that there's some fundamental characteristic that they that none of them have. Right. It's because mm -hmm. our society is set up in a way that, you know, that maintains and perpetuates poverty and makes people poor. And so. I think after the 2008 financial crisis, which hit, which hit that middle income strata of society differently, right. you know, in many ways they didn't recover. And then there's the pandemic. There is actually more of a possibility of winning them over to to see themselves aligned, in fact, with with these tens of millions of poor people, you know, because. You, you know that that what you're going through isn't your fault, right? You can, right. you deserve better and you can have the things you need. And so if again, you know, we've seen it happen. I've seen it happen when, when people are saying, you know, whether you're newly poor or you've been poor your whole life, I need a house, you need a house. Let's figure this out together. And people talk about, I mean, we're all aware of the, the housing crisis, which is a real crisis. Uh, and the answer really is, Houses, <laughs> homes. <Right. laughs> you know? yes. I mean, people are living out in the streets not because they choose to do that for the most part. Uh, I mean, I suppose there are some people who want to camp outside just for, for kicks, but not very many. Most, you know, no. if people, if we, if the, I mean, the federal government is the only place that has any kind of money like that that can build housing. And that, I wonder if you could talk just for a minute about how if people have, places to live you know that are that are not cold that are not rained on and, and you know a place that they can uh, call home what what that does for a, a community and you know how that builds up a sense of belonging in the community and how it's it's in everybody's interest not to have homeless people and you know you don't it, it's easy i can imagine some people are like oh that's that's a homeless person let's walk on the other side of the street Mm, 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 mm. You know, and people blame themselves. It's not, for the most part, it's not, self-blame doesn't get anybody anywhere. And, and building houses, is this, 
I would think perhaps this is part of uh, the Poor People's Campaign agenda. Absolutely. It was part of the agenda in 1968. Oh and, and unfortunately, right, 50, more than 50 years later, it's still part of our agenda. Um, and so, you know, and, and I think there have been kind of multiple studies that show that housing people um, is much more kind of efficient economically. Yes, yes. Right. Then 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 paying for all the care that unhoused people require, um, whether it's health care or, you know, all these other systems that have to be put in place. Um, and so and, and this is the case down the line. And, you know, in fact, this this narrative on wealth and poverty is so distorted um, that, that people believe that, you know, the military is the great is, you know, is a good job creator or no, right. the way to get Right. But in fact, every dollar, every dollar that goes into a low wage worker's pocket gets multiplied into more than that dollar. Right. When, when yes. it gets spent, it, 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 it's generative in the economy. And so that's that's not something that we're, we're led to believe or to understand that, in fact, giving poor and low income people some more resources to make life better improves the economy as a whole. Yes, it does. Demand side uh, economics works a heck of a lot better than supply side. That's for sure. And what what would you say to people who would say that that what the Poor People's Campaign wants to do that the agenda is about the nanny state? You've heard that expression, I'm sure. What, what's what's your response to that? We've already answered some of that, you know, because it does make economic sense if you give somebody, you know, it's it's cheaper to to create housing, low-income housing, than it is to, to help people once they become homeless. Uh, but go ahead. What, what do you, Nanny yeah, State? Yeah, I mean, so, so you mentioned already in terms of corporate welfare, right? So mm-hmm. there are all these tax breaks, all these loopholes that corporations take advantage of, not paying their fair share in taxes, right? But right. Let's, let's think about, let's look at another um, beneficiary of, like, you know, we spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year for national defense, right? right. We call it national security. Mm-hmm. Um idea that the military is the best pathway out of poverty, you know, but, but as with these other things, it doesn't, it doesn't actually lead you out of poverty. There's widespread hunger and food insecurity among military families. Um, there's a poverty draft that pulls poor people into the military is quite literally oh, the only yes. way, mm-hmm. right, for, for, for to get health care, to get education, to get yeah. skills training. But then what the military actually does, and this is what I would define as a nanny state, right, is to funnel billions of dollars to private contractors, companies like Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Halliburton, Northrop Grumman, you know, most military spending goes to these contracts, to their CEOs, not to military personnel, not to the people on the front lines. And so, you know, how is this, if anyone is being nannied, right, if anyone, no. uh, the Pentagon has never passed an internal audit. It regularly cannot account for billions and billions, billions of dollars it gets, but it gets more and more every year. So if any, you know, if we have a nanny state, it is, it is, you know, it is the nanny for the Pentagon and for these contractors and for corporations and the, and the very, very wealthy whose bad behavior is encouraged yes. year after year, right? Not the people who, you know, who, who have to, who are in these terrible situations of having to decide between paying for their medication or their childcare, right? They're not being nannied at all. These, you know, these Pentagon contractors and corporations are the ones being nannied. How do you really feel? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Don't hold back. Uh, and, you know, it's it's true that, uh, you know, they say that uh, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, uh, program, the New Deal, didn't work as much as going to war in World War II. Well, the reason was because massive spending on the military. Yeah. And if we had, you know, if if you could convert 
uh, places that build, say, rockets and military equipment into useful things like high-speed rail cars and things like that, that would create just as many jobs, if not more, and be better for our national economy. I think we ought to redefine what we mean by national security, quite frankly. I mean, you know, giving, giving these guys all those hundreds of billions of dollars with no accountability. Uh, that's how I really feel. <laughs> and the campaign had a news conference to announce the start date of the 42-week mobilization. One of the speakers was Linda Burns, I read about. Could you tell us about her and her experience with trying to organize a union at her local Amazon facility? Yes, uh, Linda was one of the Amazon warehouse workers, um, an assembly line worker who was organizing in Bessemer, Alabama for a union. Um, you know, she was struggling with labor rights, decent health care benefits, and she was one of hundreds of workers at that facility who wanted a union uh, to better, you know, secure those those rights that she deserves. Um, their effort was ultimately crushed. You know, uh, intimidation tactics by Amazon meant that they didn't they didn't win that election. But, you know, right. the, the National Labor Relations Board had already determined that Amazon had interfered with an earlier election. So um, Linda was actually, you know, she was ultimately fired for being part of that activity, which meant she lost her health care um, right before surgery she needed, which, in fact, was for an injury she received on the job. Mm. So it kind of shows everything that's wrong here, right? You're injured at work. You need better healthcare benefits. You try to organize to get those benefits. You get fired for that organizing and lose your healthcare. Um, And today she works, you know, very long hours as a caregiver. But but what she said at that press conference and what, you know, what, how she carries herself is that she says, you know, she's worked too hard to have nothing. Um, she's worked too hard to have nothing, and so she's standing up mm. for, for all the rights that she deserves and other workers and other people like her in this country. Wow, that's some powerful words. Another speaker was Wisconsin's Veronica Burton. She said, mm-hmm. and I'm curious about this, if you want to know what's wrong with our society, listen to the babies. What, what did she mean by that? Do you know? So Veronica, yeah, Veronica is another caregiver um, who lives in Beloit, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, she works at a child care center. And what she's asking us to pay attention to is, is what's happening to, to families with children um, who are dealing with all kinds of responsibilities, but fewer and fewer means to meet those needs. So in a state like Wisconsin, where um, I believe the minimum wage is still seven twenty-five, mm-hmm. right? Seven twenty-five. The state is cutting back on uh, you know people's access to health care and other social programs. And Veronica at this childcare center has seen parents and mothers pull their children out of childcare because they can't afford to pay um, for the childcare center and for life-saving medications. Right. So what she's calling attention to is this is this widespread crisis. And how how have we placed parents, caregivers in a position to, to have to make these brutal choices between compromising on the care they can give their children, their babies and themselves? Right. There's something fundamentally wrong here that she's she's calling out. Boy, I'd say so. And, uh, you know, t- as you were describing it, I mean, it's so. It's frankly immoral, in my opinion, to, to, to have, a, you know, to create a situation like that where they have to choose like that. And it's not just, you know, doing the right thing, being, you know, uh, a, you know, a nice guy or whatever. It's in everybody's interest to do that. And, and the idea of morals, what, 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 tell us about the role of, of morals here. I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King in 1968 mm-hmm. called for a revolution in values in America. I wonder how values 
and morals play into this. And, and that, that's fairly big because I think, you know, we've had the so-called moral majority. And I, I think you know, people on the, on the right, you know, tend to at least give lip service to morals and values. What about morals and values when it comes to the poor people's campaign and the role in that and, and you know, the, the centrality of that perhaps? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, just to take a take a step back to 1968, um, you know, when when King was talking about that revolution of values, he was speaking to, you know, the crisis of um, like the the crisis around racism. Right. So after the civil rights movement wins a bunch of things, you know, what he said was black folks could now sit at the lunch counter, but couldn't afford anything on the menu. So the crisis of racism was connected to this crisis of poverty. Um, and he begins to organize this last campaign of his life, the Poor People's Campaign, um, bringing people together across race to fight for these things, but also to confront this third crisis um, of militarism, the war in Vietnam. Yes. Um, and so he's confronting these three things all together. And the, the revolution of values he's talking about was, you know, not, as he said, thingifying human beings, mm. right, refusing mm. to justify their exploitation, refusing to worsen these crises, but instead moving you know, the resources that we do have to meet the needs of the poor, beginning with the poor. Um, In fact, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but his last sermon was entitled Why America is Going to Hell um, Because of this Disintegration of Its Values and Priorities. Um, And so 50 years later, we're even more in need of this kind of revolution of values. And we use the word moral Mm -hmm. um, in part because, you know, it, it moves us away from this dichotomy around right and left, right? Um, so this idea of morals isn't, uh, you, you got to look beyond right and left to see what's right and wrong. Um, and that, that gets, that kind of shakes off the the political divide that sometimes we can be, we can be forced into. Mm-hmm. Um, if we just say, you know, the, the fact that hundreds of hospitals have been closed, rural hospitals, that's wrong. It doesn't take too much to figure out that that's wrong. Um, the fact that, you know, where I live in New York city, almost, you know, uh, 10% of the kids in the public school system are homeless. Like, that's wrong. Mm. Um, the fact that we spent, you know, $21 trillion in the past 20 years on policing and war and surveillance and prison, well, all these things have been getting worse. That's wrong. And so I think that's where this question of morality comes in. Like, can we get beyond that framework of right and left mm-hmm. to see what's right or wrong and then stand on the side of what's right? And I suspect that may have some appeal beyond the t- traditional right and left. There's a people, people on the right, I mean, everybody, at least, well, not everybody, but a lot of people, I'd say most people, hopefully, care about morals and doing the right thing. And I, I think that may be able to connect with people. I mean, I'm, I'm not always right. In fact, I'm often wrong. But uh, I, I just think that that's an interesting way to put it, because people want to do the right thing. When given yes. the opportunity, people want to do the right thing. Except there are entities like Amazon, which everybody buys stuff from Amazon. Everybody. It's like, I mean, it's it's, it's basically become a public utility. I mean, it's like, how can you compete mm-hmm. with Amazon? Where, what about their morals, do you think, that, that the campaign seeks to address? Uh, their, the Amazon's role in the current economy and any kind of morals or lack thereof of, of Specifically, Amazon. 
Yeah, Amazon in many ways, you know, exemplifies, you know, what's what's wrong. Um, on the one hand, it's this, you know, one point whatever trillion dollar empire. Yeah. Um, its CEO, Jeff Bezos, is one of the wealthiest people in the world. Yes. Um, it's one of the largest employers in the country, but it takes advantage of, of the people who are working for it. Um, there was a study last year that found that Amazon warehouse workers like Linda, um, they earn, you know, $800 less a month, right, than warehouse workers in, you know, similar places where Amazon isn't operating, right? You don't hear this about Amazon. You only hear about all their good jobs, but their workers earn hundreds and hundreds of dollars less a week and a month than if if Amazon didn't exist there. Um, and, and even though Amazon's starting pay is, you know, $17 an hour, that's, that's way, way less than what it takes to meet your cost of basic needs. And, and in fact, um, there was a, a report from the United Nations last year that, that described Amazon workers as being trapped in poverty, right? Reliant mm. on public benefits to meet their needs. They described Amazon as shifting its operating costs to the public to maintain its profits. I mm. mean, it just really it encapsulates everything that's wrong with our society, um, how this great wealth that has been accumulated isn't shared down the line. It's not benefiting those who are in fact responsible for that wealth, the workers, right? Workers like Linda and so many others. Instead, Amazon is actively organizing against those workers, right? It's yes. just, it's wrong, it's harmful, and it's actually, you know, as we said earlier, very economically inefficient. Um, it just doesn't work. What we, what we sometimes say in the Perdios campaign is that moral policy, policies that actually kind of uh, center and prioritize the poor, the Lindas and you know other people like her, moral policies are also good economics. That's how we're going to revive our economy and make sure it works for everyone. Well put. And uh, uh, the, uh, um, the poor, it, it noted in the uh, Poor People's Campaign literature, this nation is indeed at a critical juncture. What do you see as the two divergent paths? Where for which we stand, where we stand at the crossroads. What what kind of crossroads are we looking at? Yeah, I think I think those paths are defined, you know, again by this polarization, right? It's not right and left. It's mm. not woke or unwoke. It's it's really you know the, between the wealthy and the poor, um, and you know poor meaning in the broadest sense of the word poor, right? right. Uh, people who are low income, people who don't have you know the ability to to meet your needs on a regular basis. Um, and this polarization between wealth and poverty, that's, what just, that's what's defining the path forward. Are we going to be a society that's in service of the wealthy, that's mm. in service of the Amazons? Or are we going to be in society that's in service of the poor, dedicated, right, not to, not to maintaining poverty, but to ending it and all of the injustices that are enmeshed with that, you know, so we can all thrive? That's, that's how I see the juncture. And, and once we have our answer to that, then we have to act, you know, committedly and accordingly, not incrementally, to ensure that everything we do is moves us down that path. Boy, and it's been going on for a long time. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Shelley Gupta-Barnes, who is with the Poor People's Campaign, which is on a big uh, effort to uh, have a revival, a rejuvenation of morals in this country and uh, get us get us off the nanny state for the big corporations that are just uh, hurting the country. They are weakening us, that's for sure, and, and dividing the country. Um, what are your hopes for participation in the 42-week endeavor? What, what can people do, uh, and how, do they, how can people get involved if they so choose? 
over the course of these many, many weeks ahead, um, we, as the Poor People's Campaign, but also anyone who's listening, anyone for whom you know right. these issues resonate, we have a chance to raise these issues, right, to confront these narratives that keep us from seeing this reality and to awaken those masses of people, awaken that sleeping giant mm-hmm. who need this country and its leaders to do better. Um, so so me personally, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in two things. Uh, one, that, that most people are good. Right. When press yes. make the right decision, the moral decision, we will do that to the best of our abilities. And and two, that that poor people, poor and low income people, if if organized to take action together, we that can draw out those better angels of our nature. Mm. Um, and so my hope is that we reach more and more of those people during these 40 weeks. We organize them into the state, our state committees and infrastructure and, and really, you know, and so we can start to see the power of this political um, behemoth, you know, that, that hasn't been unleashed yet. And um, regardless of what happens in this election year, there has to be an ongoing commitment uh, to the poor, to the poor, not, as, not only as a voting block, but as a social force uh-huh. that can shift where we're heading as a nation, move us down a different path. And so, so folks who are interested in this, you know, you can, you can find out more about this campaign and the 40 weeks uh, towards, uh, towards um, election day uh, online, uh, poorpeoplescampaign.org, we're uh-huh. on social media. Um, you can find your state committee as well. Um, and you can also find and support uh, the national anchor organizations of the Poor People's Campaign, uh, the Cairo Center, which is K-A-I-R-O-S center.org and Repairs of the Breach. Well, there's so much to do here. And, you know, I was thinking about uh, Ronald Reagan, who really set this country on a bad, bad course. He, <laughs> he, he set it on, uh, you know, serving the he had uh, supply side economics, which was uh, just a t- terrible disaster. And he I, I remember there was a political button way back then. Stop Reagan's war on the poor. And mm. it really that that kicked it off. It's been going on a long time. There's a lot of work to do. But, you know, if we recognize that it's in nobody's interest to maintain a, a subjugated class, it's in nobody's interest to, to have, you know, a, a few ex- unbelievably wealthy people and a whole bunch of people that used to be middle class but aren't middle class anymore, and the children... You know, as that one woman said, you know, listen to the babies, listen to the babies. This this can uh, be a more of a focus on building what I would consider real national security. So, what's that that website again? Poor people's yes, poorpeoplescampaign uh, dot org. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today and and for your important work. There's going to be a lot that's going on in communities throughout the country. Shelley Gupta Barnes, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. And you're doing a heck of a lot to keep democracy alive. I like democracy. Thank you so much, Bert. Me too. <laughs> All right. Wake up, everybody. No more sleeping in bed. No more back thinking, time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much from what it used to be. There's so much hatred, war and poverty. Just let it be. Na, 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 na. The world won't get no better. We gotta 
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.